Thank you, everybody. Welcome back to the big show. As always, my name is Matt, coming to you live from Austin and from Planet Houston. My brother, Ken. Say hello, Ken. Peace and long life. Excellent. Well, this week we're going to be talking about episode number five of Star Trek Discovery. Choose your pain. Sounds so ominous. Don't have a lot to talk about in the behind the scenes stuff, but as always, I'm going to be talking about one of the actors because I like to do that every week and like to give the actors their due. So this week, uh, we're going to be talking about good old Doug Jones, right, who plays our uh, our first officer and captain in this episode uh, by the name of Saru. Doug Jones has a total of 159 credits on IMDb. The funny part is, is that as you're scrolling down, it may not be surprising to learn that he has played many creatures in his life, uh, in his acting career. Uh, he played Cochise in Falling Stars. He played the Silver Surfer in the Fantastic Four sequel. Probably most notably, he played Abe Sapien in the two Hellboy movies. And uh, all those Buffy fans out there would probably know, know him as one of the gentlemen from the very famous episode, Hush. You keep scrolling through, you see stuff like Demon, Alien, Ghost, Ghoul. He's even played the ancient vampire on uh, the FX show The Strain. So here's one of those guys who has made his like entire career behind the mask. He could be walking down the street and you'd never even know it because that's... Uh, that's the kind of actor he is. He's one of those behind-the-mask guys. So uh, kudos to you, Doug Jones, for all the great work that you've done playing uh, both sinister and fun creatures behind those masks. You know, uh, the trick about playing creatures, about being the kind of character actor who has to you know, embody an alien, embody a monster, is that you're not acting in the traditional way, uh, a very William Shatner way with facial expressions and, you know, gestures. Instead, you're doing it with uh, having to embody a different way of walking, a different way of moving. Right. You know, uh, we watched, there were two Klingons, or actors playing Klingons on After Trek after this current episode. Uh-huh. And, of course, they, in a, in a sense, have to do the same thing. A lot of face makeup. They have to change the way they speak. In the case of Klingons, they learn a foreign language. Yep. They had to learn how to, you know, they talked about speaking with different, uh, um, you know, sounds and uh, different phonemes. And so, you know, characters like our Captain Saru in this episode, you know, have to kind of figure out who is my alien? How do they move? You know, the costume will help them get into character because there's, uh, you know, Saru talks about, you know, the shoes he has to wear. <laughs> right. Because his species is hooved. But that's a, it's an interesting and a different kind of work to make the character come alive rather than being an awkward person who's having to wear a bunch of makeup and you know have a bunch of different stuff on. Yeah. To make that feel like, that's a creature, that's an alien, that's a monster, that's something real. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a, you know, a, a definitely... Uh, a different way of embodying the creature or uh, the the character, character. there, yeah, that you're playing. So uh, it's yeah, totally cool. And I mean, obviously, he's not the only one. There are many other famous people we could talk about who have been the you know the men behind the masks. But uh, he's definitely, um, I mean, just based on everything I told you, he's he's one he's one of the big ones out there in the TV TV and uh, Hollywood world. And the tradition, I think, really going back to Lon Chaney. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Somebody who really like buried themselves in a in a character, you know, in some ways, not in the same way, but in a in a different way, but doing the same thing as you know, a lot of times Johnny Depp, who looks yeah. very different in all of his roles, plays very different, sounds very different sometimes. So uh, totally cool. So uh, having mentioned Johnny Depp, uh, new movie coming out in November. They, they did a remake of Murder on the Orient Express. Yes, I'm very excited about that. It looks like it's a fantastic cast, but one of the things that struck me about this cast is the age range. Uh-huh. And so you really, you have four or five young actors, uh, Daisy Ridley right. is in it, uh, and you've got maybe six or seven older actors. This is the kind of a movie that a family could go to, and they, the young people would instantly spot two or three of the, the younger actors, the 
uh, you know, the older generation would be more familiar with some of the older actors, wouldn't necessarily know some of the younger actors. And right. Lot, everyone's got people they can get into. All the acting looks like it's going to be fantastic. This looks like it's going to be a really good movie. Yeah, I can't wait for that movie. I think it's going to be uh, astounding. I think it's... Uh... Uh, but yeah, there's all sorts of people. Judy Dench is in that movie. You know, we got Kenneth Branagh. now. So uh, yeah, definitely going to be a, a lot of fun to watch that movie for sure. Yeah. So of course, you know, when I, I showed this to my granddaughters, they instantly recognized uh, the name, not necessarily the, the face of uh, Leslie Odom Jr. Because uh-huh. of course they, they love the Hamilton. Love it. So he's, you know, one of and. Him and Daisy Ridley, of course, is is Ray and the current Star Wars. Yep. And of course, then you've got Weem Defoe and and Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. So this just looks like it's going to be a lot. Seriously, of fun. spanning the generations of actors. That's right. Which is, I think is is good for bringing in, uh, you know, a lot of audiences that can sit down together and watch a movie together. It's not a young person's movie, not an old person's movie. Right. Definitely. See? Speaking of that kind of generation spanning stuff going on. Yeah. <laughs> we had a list of captains in this episode. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to wait till we get there, but we can talk about it now, definitely. So we got Jonathan Archer. Right, obviously from Enterprise. From Enterprise, who was uh, captain of the very first Enterprise. Right. Took a leading role in building the Federation and, and exploring this whole, how do you go out and explore you know, explore new worlds and find new civilizations thing Yeah. that we call Star Trek. You get Robert April, the very first captain of the Constitution-class Enterprise. Uh-huh. You had uh, Christopher Pike, who is currently captain of the Enterprise, running around there with his new science officer, Spock, somewhere. You had uh, our captain, Giorgio, yep. who we met in... Uh, Episodes one and two of our current series. Who am I leaving out? Matthew Decker. That's right, Matthew Decker, who we will meet as Commodore Decker in the original series. Yep. And of course, his son goes on to be Captain Decker of the Enterprise when a certain for Admiral you know Kirk... about uh, two weeks until <laughs> <laughs> Admiral Kirk decides he's got to sit in the big chair. Yeah. So apparently there's also a, an episode in the animated series where we get to meet Robert a- April in person. Mm-hmm. We don't just hear about him. So Yeah. Also something worth looking up in those uh a lot of fun stuff in that in those animated episodes as well. That's right. And you know, if you've gone and and done the subscription to CBS All Access, it's just yeah. as easy to to go back and watch some of those other episodes that have connections to the current episode. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, if that's all we got before we start, let's get to it. Captain's log, starting. It's five-year mission. So we start with uh, this sort of, like, fuzzy, dreamlike tour of discovery. Uh, We're going through the hallways. We're going through some of the different... uh, We're in the cafeteria again. But, like, no one's on the ship. Then we hit engineering. Ooh, there's Burnham. Burnham's standing there. And then she's also standing in the spore chamber. She's in two places at once. She then turns on the spore drive. And then, like I said last week, those things drive themselves into her sides. And Burnham screams. And then we pan over to the other one, and she's screaming, too. Apparently, this is some sort of symbiotic relationship that's going on here but it turns out it's all a dream because burnham wakes up yeah f in her stack is really hitting her at this point (laughs) that's right so uh we cut to uh cut to a little bit later burnham's hanging out in in the lab with the doctor uh she points out uh, to him that with each jump the talagrade is getting weaker and more sluggish so then the doctor himself says uh, all right well i'll run some tests let's see what we're dealing with here Meanwhile, in a briefing with Starfleet somewhere, we find Captain Lorca talking to the Admiral that we saw in the uh, in, in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we find out that more drives, more of the spore drives are being built, and that all of Starfleet are out uh, hunting the, the, the tardigrades. This, this is actually uh, some bad news for those of us uh, 
Uno, the future. Here you have a, a critical war effort, and if Starfleet is busy building spore drives, and spore drives aren't going to pan out. <laughs> True. Very possibly because we're not going to have a bunch of these creatures to operate them. Yes. These are some seriously misdirected resources. This is a bad <laughs> case of you know, misallocation. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, it's funny because a lot of the books lately have been bringing up, uh, the, a lot of the Star Wars books lately, excuse me, have been bringing up the idea of, you know, what happened to the galaxy's resources while they were trying to build not just one, but two Death Stars and, you mm. know, what kind of like severe. So it's kind of that same way of like, oh, my gosh, we are like all these resources that we would normally put to building a warship or building, you know, a new weapon are suddenly being diverted into this as you say, you know, thing that is not going to pan out for poor Starfleet. Yeah, so it, this is the kind of thing that may may prolong the war rather than shorten it, which is what people are hoping. And, you know, we'll have to see how the spore drive pans out. Right. You know, so there, there may be more spore drive activity, you know, in the future that... Uh, but, of course, it, it doesn't work out in the long run, we know. Yeah. And, you know, as, as the creators have talked about, they've, they've created this arc, this idea of the spore drive, with the knowledge that, there's, that it doesn't work out in the long run, that we don't right. see it in the original series or in the future. So they're not just going to hand wave their way and go, well, in this, in this universe, we're driving with spore drive. It's going to be totally fine. <laughs> Sorry, I am trying to find... The name of the admiral. Cornwall. Oh, well, that's nice. All right. <clears throat> there we go. Back to it. Okay. Uh, so Admiral Cornwall then uh, tells, uh, asks Lorca to like, all right, let's not use the spore drive so much. All right, this is our uh, biggest asset in the fleet, so let's not be, uh, you know, using it and bringing it into situations because we have a feeling that the Klingons now are on the lookout for discovery. And, uh, you know, we want to keep the ship and use it strategically whenever we can. <clears throat> she says all this, much to Lorca's dismay, of course. Back on the Discovery, Burnham is uh, quietly having lunch by herself, like a good uh, INFJ would, you know. Uh, and uh, Tilly comes over and sits down and starts talking, as she does. She tries to get uh, Burnham to open up. Burnham doesn't want to do it, so Tilly kind of tricks her into doing it. Burnham says uh, she's having a problem processing her feelings. Now, I was wondering, of course, is this because she was, like, raised on Vulcan, you know? They just right, they right. How to deal with that. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that, that you know, the Myers-Briggs approach suggests is that you are good at what you're good at because those are your preferences. You do them more. Mm-hmm. You know, so that if you are, let's say, a dominant extroverted sensor, you're good at that because you do a lot of extroverted sensing all the time. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, for whatever reason, don't utilize some part of your stack, you just won't be good at it. And so it's very possible that a Vulcan upbringing, Vulcan training, Vulcan education has not gotten her to the point where she's good at utilizing her feelings. Whereas Tilly... You know, it says in this conversation, I, I love to feel feelings. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's it's you know very likely that she that Tilly's an F. Exactly, very very very, uh, an extroverted F probably. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also worth pointing out too that Burnham's been going through a lot. You know what I mean? Yep. She's been uh, convicted of you know mutiny. She's uh, saw the death of her you know uh, uh, you know her mentor. So obviously, that's like it's not just easy stuff for anybody to deal with, let alone somebody right. who's not even used to processing those, those, uh, those feelings. Yeah. So one of the things you always want to watch out for is that trauma will make people act in ways that will throw off any kind of analysis of their personality, because what you'll be seeing isn't their personality, but their trauma. Yeah. Fair. So uh, we cut to Lorca back uh, wherever he is, somewhere dealing with Starfleet. And uh, he's uh, putting the medicine in his eye. <laughs> Admiral Cromwell walks in. She turns on the lights. 
He yells at her, turn it off! I can't see, I can't deal with light. Uh, she tells him, like, hey, why don't you just go get your eyes fixed? He says that he doesn't trust doctors and insists on <laughs> taking these treatments himself. Uh, the Admiral then decides to bring up Burnham. Lorca, of course, you know, uh, says, uh, hey, you know, according to Starfree regulations, we're allowed to uh, conscript anyone during time of war. Uh, the Admiral goes on to say that she doesn't like it, and not only that, but it's bad for morale. You know, here we are with our first mutineer in Starfleet, you know, in Starfleet, and she's running around, you know, with the, helping the war that she helped create. Lorca responds with, uh, hey, my ship, my way. I get to do whatever I want. Uh... Lorca is then put on a shuttlecraft and sent back to the Discovery. But on the way, the Klingons attack. Dun, dun, dun. They kill the pilot and take Lorca off the ship, as well as he has dropped the medicine for his eyes. Oh, you know, no. they were... Uh, now, of course, he's a ship captain, right? Yes. So it would be interesting to go back to, let's say, World War II, and see how ship captains actually moved about. Mm -hmm. Now, in the case of heads of state, who were vastly more important than any one particular ship captain, you know, when uh, when Churchill would go to Canada or to meet with FDR, FDR would, uh, you know, move around to meet with people, the amount of ships that were protecting the head of state were actually quite large. Mm hmm you know, it wasn't like a guy in a shuttlecraft <laughs> <laughs> with with one <laughs> pilot. Yeah, with one guy. Yeah, it, it's, you know, we see episodes in the original series in which the Enterprise seems to be delivering a diplomat. Uh -huh. And it, it, it almost suggests, you know, like, why isn't there an actual ship, even if it's a small frigate type ship? You know, the kind of thing that in Star Trek we see, they look like they're half the size of normal ships, even though they kind of have the same design. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, something that wouldn't have basically just been tractor beamed and we got gotcha. you. So uh, credits happen at this point. I've uh, still been enjoying the credits. I don't like fast forward past them yet. You know, I like uh, seeing the uh, the old school phasers and the old yep. school communicators. It's always fun. And then always you just get to that the like last right. ten seconds of the theme where they're playing the dun 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 dun. Even that's like still cool. So yeah, still watching those credits. You know, it's a, it's a good beginning because it's not too long, but it does hit. So it's it's got good stuff in it. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't. It doesn't. You know. One of the things that changed, if you watch some of, let's say, the uh, Next Generation, uh -huh. is a lot of the stuff has gotten you know, moved to other parts of, of the show. Yes. Yeah, well, you know, that was even true back in, like, I can't even remember when it started. I think it started somewhere in the 90s when they started shortening all of those, all of, like, those opening title sequence. But, you know, you can remember, like, you know, The Greatest American Hero with their, believe it or not, you know, that was like... Yeah. That became like a, a, you know, a charting song on the yeah. billboards, you know. You had uh, Moonlighting and, you know, Next Generation with their famous, you know, fanfare. Hill Street Blues, Remington Steel, all of these like really famous like 80s theme songs. And now that's just like lost, you know. <laughs> we just don't have those anymore. It's like two seconds of boop, 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 boop. And then you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Guess that was it. And then you have all your starring like running while the show's already up and, oh, up right, and going. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure the thing that drove that was the desire to put more commercial time in. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and even still, it's funny because even even doing that, even putting in more commercials, you know, shows that used to be. Well, you can even look at the original Star Trek, and you know, in in the '60s, you know, what does it run when we were watching it? It was running like 48, 50 minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, now you're down to like 40, 42 to 44 minutes in a lot of those, you know, hour-long dramas. So it's crazy. But, you know, that's what pays the bills as well. So the more commercials for them, the better. Right. So you want to, you want to strike a balance yeah. because it's the the audience has to have, you know, enough content that they want to remain engaged. You can sell more advertising, but then if the audience decides that they're not into it. And, of course, we also live in a world now where it's a lot easier to skip those commercials. Yeah, absolutely. 
Like so, DVR was like the greatest invention ever. <laughs> yeah. Come back from commercial. Dun dun dun. Back at it. The uh, the admiral informs the crew of the dis- the disappearance of the Lorca. They don't have a lot of information. So Saru, now as acting captain, starts his own. Uh, Burnham walks onto the bridge, <laughs> but again, not before we see Saru's threat ganglia activate again. Uh, she says she wants to see see uh, Lorca. Cut to the ready room. Saru. Uh, Saru tells her that the uh, captain is no longer available, that he's been taken. Burnham tries to tell Saru of her concerns of the, uh, about the tardigrade. Saru says that without proof, uh, I can't listen. I don't want to, you know, listen to anything else you have to tell me. And he commands her to t- have no more talk of the tardigrade until we get the captain back. And he dismisses her. All right. Whoa, Saru. Whoa. It's also interesting to point out here that Burnham is concerned. Oh, she also says, which I also thought was interesting that she is also concerned with how helpful the tardigrade will continue to be if they keep hurting it. Right. Which I thought was going to set up something a little more sinister of, uh, of uh, stuff. I thought that we were going to get a lot. There's going to be more of the tardigrade than, like, refusing to help or something like that. And it ended up not happening, but they set up that possibility. When they – when – at the end of episode three, when Lorca puts Burnham in the, in the spore containment field thing and – basically shows her Romulus. You know, it it would have it been fun to have the tardigrade go, oh, you think we're going to go fight the Klingons? Look, we're, we're at Romulus now. I yeah, exactly, right, yeah. <laughs> like, whoa! You wanted to be. Sorry for ending your space. Bye! Yeah, we're going to go home now. <laughs> so uh, it's at this point where Saru... Uh, uh, Gets a list of the most decorated captains, living or deceased. Mm-hmm. We uh, were talking about that list earlier. It's fun. Uh, he then asks for the qualities that make uh, them good captains. So the computer here lists bravery, self-sacrifice, intelligence, tactical brilliance, and also mentions compassion, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. Uh, you, to me, that sounds like Kirk to a T. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. What do you think about the list? Well, we get these various lists, right? Mm-hmm. And we had one last episode. Do you want to be like the Wright Brothers, Elon Musk? Yeah, yeah. from Cochran. Is that from Cochran? Now, of course, we know all those guys, but that's because one of them is in our history, one of them is contemporary, one of them is established in... Future history. In Star Trek canon. Yeah. But sometimes we get these lists, and when, it, you know, it goes, uh, it's like Genghis Khan or Napoleon... And then you name off two guys that we've never heard of. Yeah. And then Khan, Nunian. And of course, we just we just go over those two missing names that we don't know who they are. But in this case, everybody is in, you know, like there's no admirals from World War II. And then there's no of the intermediate period because there is uh-huh. the eugenics war, right? So there's nobody from the eugenics war. It's all guys that are really connected to ship's named Enterprise. Right. So we got three captains who were captains of the Enterprise. Because, you know, some, sometimes Star Trek will really focus closely on our ship, and our ship is special. And sometimes it feels like the ship that we're on is the only ship in the universe. And other times, you're, you know, you're made to feel just how big Starfleet is. And this is one of those times when they really focused on the ship that we're watching. Although in this case, with the Enterprise, a, a, a beloved ship. Exactly. So Saru asked the uh, the computer to hypothesize if the success rate of him uh, of him being a good captain. The computer asks for the reason. There's a destructive element on the ship that is making him, uh, you know, doubt himself. So the computer says, uh, "Well, why don't you just eliminate it?" And uh, Saru is basically like, yeah, I can't do that. That's not going to happen. <laughs> <clears throat> we cut to Lorca, who is now lying on the floor of the uh, Klingon prison ship. We meet, uh, we meet Mud, who is also in the, uh, in the cell, uh, finally. Uh, he tells us uh, this story about uh, this girl that he knew and a moon he was going to buy her and some creditors. Uh, I was wondering that maybe if like half this story is probably true, maybe I the think part it, about I think the it moon is because he, he does mention Stella. 
Oh, that's true. Uh, then a Klingon enters the cell. Uh, he says, uh, and uh, Mud just points to this other random Starfleet officer that just happens to be lying on the floor. Uh, so the Klingons uh, take the other officer, beat him up, and then uh, I think they kill him, right? They just like, boom, because we never see him again. Uh, the Klingons allow the, uh, apparently we find out, Mud tells us that the uh, Klingons allow the prisoners to choose who is going to uh, take the beating. To and, choose uh, their pain. That's right, choose their pain. And so we, uh, Mud chose him. We're getting a lot of uh, the episode title being mentioned in the show. Right. I'll, yeah, yeah, it keeps happening. Uh, Mud says, you'll want to stick with me. I'm a survivor. Just like you. Commercial. Uh, so this, uh, I, was, I was wondering about this. The, this Mud seems a little bit less uh, flamboyant. Perhaps right. to say than the other mud that we see in the uh, the original series, you gotta you gotta take on that. Well, I think part of it is you know how television works. Uh-huh. Uh, a campy character like the 1966 mud just uh, he's, he wouldn't fit in a drama. That's a comedy True. character. That's that's fair. And so. I think they would be so – that just wouldn't work. People wouldn't accept it. Yeah. I think everything is darker today. So, you know, you, you posted on our Facebook page, you know, what, what's up with Lorca. Yeah. And part of that, I think, is that, you know, people are – They can tell he's darker. Now, of course, part of it's because this is a wartime story. And I think if we were to watch the wartime episodes of Deep Space Nine. Right. If you watched, uh, you know, some of those, you'd you'd think, wow, this Cisco character, he's really dark. (laughs) Yeah. Especially comparing him to Kirk or somebody. Right. Or like Picard, who in many ways is our lightest character. Yep. You know, if you think about how contemporary culture often talked about Captain Kirk, he sounds much more aggressive than the Kirk that we know if we actually watch him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. You know, you have he's a, he's mentioned in a you know ninety nine Luft balloons as as like a guy who's going to start nuclear war, right? Yeah. But of course, if you watch the the show, that that's not Kirk. You know, Kirk is uh, he's an explorer. He's someone who can step into a battle situation, but he's not all warfare all the time. Right. In fact, I think there are times in which Kirk gets caught off balance at the beginning of an episode or the beginning of an encounter because he's thinking like an explorer, not like, you know, a guy like Lorca or Jellico might protecting your ship, defending, you know, thinking about this in a tactical military situation all the time. Yeah, it's not the way he comes into every situation. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's there's that element of it. I think that it's also the case that it's possible that just like the Superman of our current DC franchise is a darker character than Christopher Reeves was, or you know, let alone Which George Green. Which I hate. That he's darker. Yeah, he's got to be. He's hope. Like they even yeah. talk about how much like he's he's supposed to be this symbol of hope, and you're like, he's just like whiny and <laughs> annoying. I mean, I know we're not seeing like his most like bold and uh, amazing, right. uh, you know, things. It all seems to be happening between the movies. But like, can we yeah. please just get like a super hopeful, awesome Superman again? Right. Who smiles. Well, you know, part of our problem, of course, is that these are the styles of, you know, artistic styles, right? Right. You know, so as, as you go from impressionism to, you know, something else, or well, pointillism, people are painting in the new style. And if you preferred the old style, if you think, you know, this subject matter actually would have been better in the style from seven to ten years ago than the current style, you're out of luck because that's not what people are working in today. Right. 
But there's something to be said of like being able to. I mean, you're talking about freaking Superman here. You know right. what I mean? There's a way of bringing. I it's agree. Like, it's like Star Wars, right? Like Star Wars, Lucas purposely made Star Wars in a time when right. you know movies were like sad, depressing, or you know sci-fi was like you know at its course, best was 2001, which still isn't super. Superman hopeful. came out at that very time. Well, that's true. That's true. You know, it was a time in which New York was bankrupt. People thought New York is ungovernable. And yeah. in many ways, in the same way that New York is really Gotham City, <laughs> New York is also metropolis. Yeah. And, you know, Superman was very much in that jaded New York world where Lois Lane, who had previously been a more upbeat character, even though she was always kind of a hard, she was always kind of a hard scrabble 40s woman. That kind of character, that was Lois Lane. And now yeah. she was a little more of a kind of jaded, cynical, um, more more of a 70s character. Yeah. And yet Superman could be this beacon of hope. And the contrast, in a way, is what made Superman work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the problem is you got to find writers who are going to write that piece of material. Because the default position of any writer now is going to make him an anti-hero, to make him dealing with his bad feelings, his anguish. His, right. You know, stuff like that. Awful. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, this part of this is going on in Star Trek as well. Yeah, thank you. yeah that's right. fair. I, I think in this case, Burnham is the one dealing with the the painful past and the the dark feelings. and But every character is a little bit darker of a, of a shade than we would, know, except for Tilly. Tilly's so the, far. The, right, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> knows what's coming down the pike <laughs> i have this to say too about mud which uh you know could be is that we sort of have to it's like an origin story right like yeah yeah you know this is mud was like fine he was a like i mean yeah he probably made a a, a misstep here in his dealing with you know the financing people but, you know, he might not have been a scoundrel yet. And maybe this is what finally leads him into like, oh, talk. Oh, Captain Kirk. I'm, I don't know why I put an Irish accent on him. But, you know, that yeah. flamboyancy <laughs> that we see right. in the original series. That's right. All right. So back to it. Uh, we find the uh, Doctor and Burnham are attempting to convince Stamets now of the problem with the, with the tardigrade. Uh, Burnham starts with flattery, which, of course, Stamets sees right through. Uh, Although make, I think he's taken by as well. Well, it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. Uh, they make their case, but uh, all Stamets seems to do is to blame Burnham uh, for this. It's like, this was your idea to use this creature. I was trying to find another way. You're the one who brought him into this. But we'll try and find another way. So uh, back on the prison ship, we see that Lorca uh, finds yet another Starfleet crew member hanging out somewhere. His name is uh, Nash Tyler. Uh, he lost his ship and his captain at the bo- Battle of Byron. Binary stars, right? Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe. That makes more he, sense. Because like he didn't even know the battle had been named yet. Yeah. I don't, it seemed like more syllables than I heard, but it's possible that that's what he said. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Binary stars. That makes much more sense. Because I was like, what's the Battle of Byron? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Two romantic poets battling it out. That's right. And then drowning in the waters of Greece. <laughs> exactly. Of course, the captain is like, uh, well, you're either uh, good at uh, maintaining yourself or you're a good liar. So uh, Nash goes on to tell us that the captain of the ship has found herself a new toy in Nash. Ooh. I mean, we've seen some clating, uh, Klingon mating rituals in the past, but... Uh, that's not uh, that's not pretty. And as Lorca tells us later, uh, he doesn't even have enough organs, whatever that means. Lorca then, uh, I thought maybe let slip that his ship could make it into Klingon space. Then uh, all of a sudden, Mud's pet robot insect thing steals a, a little bit of the food they have. And uh, he basically says that, uh, goes on to say that it's the Federation's fault that they're at war. Lorca says, the Federation didn't start this war. And he's like, yes, you did. The moment you decided to boldly go where no man has gone before. What did you think was going to happen when you bumped into someone who didn't want you in their front yard? <laughs> I so, loved all of that. Yeah. So, again, we're, we're dealing with the comment of you know, the United States 
as hyperpower, right? Uh huh. You know, the United States involved in the Balkans in the 90s, uh, you know, dealing with uh, Iraq at the beginning of the, you know, the, or the middle of the Bush, first Bush administration, through the Clinton administration, then the Bush administration, the Obama administration. Now, the, you know, with the idea of the United States as world policemen, right? And of course, if the Federation is just the United States writ large, which it often is, you know, then you have this question of, you know, to what extent is our problem with the Klingons and the Romulans and everybody else self-inflicted versus uh-huh. the fact that they're bad guys and we're good guys and that's the source of the conflict. Right. So, we, you know, we, I don't think there's any resolution in the story, but they do bring up the argument. Well, I'm sure that's what, like, that's what the whole wartime series is about, right? I mean, series is about. For the next, the rest of these episodes are about that probably very thing. You know, it's interesting. The one of the writers who had been on on Star Trek had gone on, you know, the Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Which re- fundamentally changed once there was a real war to be talking about. Yeah. And in, in a lot of ways, they flipped their their worldview. You know, so like in the first season, certainly in the first two seasons, I think, you know, you could argue that the the humans were the victims that they were, uh, you know, it was the, the Cylons who were the bad guys. Right. They'd had this, this devious plot. And by the time you get to the third season, they, they've like flipped that narrative. And now right. the, the humans had a lot of the blame, you know, for what happened and for building the Cylons in the first place. Well, and, and for being, you know, bad, you know, caretakers of mm-hmm. everything. <laughs> of everything. <laughs> look what they did! Look what they did to Earth. Yeah. So uh, Lorca is then taken away by uh, the Klingons. Dun dun dun! What will happen? Meanwhile, back on Discovery, they are working on a way to find an alternative to the spore drive. Are hoping that they can splice the DNA of the tardigrade into a living host that uh, understands what it's doing. Tilly then goes on and drops the f bomb. Dun dun dun! The first <laughs> f bomb ever dropped on. In a Star Trek franchise show and or movie, it's amazing. Is it? Yeah, it's, it is because they've you know because so obviously we had your you know it started. I read an article about it. That's how I knew. Uh, uh, okay. You know, one of the things that they mentioned in the article was that you know obviously, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a, a you right, know, right. from the first series. But then when you get into the movies, you know, you got your double dumbasses uh, from uh, the fourth movie. I think you have a, a bitchin one. Uh, and then even in in four, when they're listening to the punk music, right? He says, uh, "Screw you," right? In the punk music, but yeah, there was never an F bomb before. Uh huh. I, I I did feel like in in Next Generation, the movies, the, the their four movies, the language got a little bit rougher. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Oh well, there you go. Uh, yeah, it, it, anyone who's like gone through and looked for them, <laughs> yes, probably. Exactly. Um. Anyway, she says this is so effing cool, and uh, she then apologizes. But no, Stamets agrees. No, you're right, Cadet. This is effing cool. Back to the Klingon ship. Lorca is now tied to a chair. So I'm just gonna say this: is that I did not realize that this captain character was Laurel. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I missed that. I don't know if they ever said her name and I missed it or what happened, but I didn't find out until way after the episode that this was actually Laurel, who, you know, was hanging out last time we saw, was hanging out with Volk on the, you know, the Shinzo. Mm-hmm. So uh, here's, here we go. Now she's the captain of a ship. What's happened in three weeks? It's crazy. Um, anyway, so she asks about the, the, the spore drive. He, of course, refuses to talk about it. Uh, uh, she says, I know that you have a sensitivity to light. And he's like, we all got something. <laughs> I love that. To which she then goes on to uh, refer to poor Nash Tyler and how uh, she's been using and abusing him. She then puts on this thing from, like, Clockwork Orange that makes his eyes stay open. Yeah. And then, boom, shines a giant light right into his eye. 
I should have counted that. <laughs> I was just thinking I could have made a there are four lights joke, but I was like, maybe there were five. I don't know. <laughs> should have counted. Oh, well. Go to commercial. Uh, Saru comes onto the bridge. And, uh, he finds out that there are three possible places where they, have, uh, they might be finding uh, Lorca. Saru says, all right, I'm ready to begin the search. But then he finds out that the spore drive is, is, is offline. He gets mad. He said, no, why is it offline? So he runs down to uh, engineering where they are still working on a substitute for the tardigrade. Saru arrives. Drama unfolds. He tells, <laughs> he tells the rest of the crew that he had told Burnham to wait until Lorca is back before talking about the tardigrade again. But Burnham confronts him with even more proof and the use of the DNA. Saru obviously tells her, hey, no, we can't do this. We're not allowed to, uh, we're not allowed to uh, genetically augment. Thank you, uh, people. But uh, she comes, she fires back with Saru. I know that in your heightened sense that you're looking for enemies, but I am not one of them. How dare you? He says to her. He says that her attitude is exactly what got Giorgio killed. Dun, dun, dun. Wow. He tells Stamets, get the Tardacrate ready. We are going after Lorca. So here's my prediction, which is only half right, but I'm willing to tell what I was thinking at the time anyway, that they are uh, they were going to get to the Klingon ship, and either one of these things will happen, is that the uh, Tardigrade will either not take them back from Klingon Refuse. space, right, or it will die, right, and then Burnham will be the one to go into the chamber herself. Ah. And do it. That was the way I was predicting it was going to happen. Obviously, that's not the way, but we'll get there. Back on the Klingon ship, Lorca goes after Mud. He's mad at him. He's like, he realizes that the little robot he's had has been feeding information to the Klingons. See, and it's funny because I actually thought that the young crewman was going to be the one who was going to sell them out. But no, it was Mud and his little listening device. Uh, the young crewman says that they are going to uh, point to Mud next time they come in to go be tortured. But Mud counters to Lorca with the knowledge that he knows how he'd lost his last command. Dun-dun-dun. Lorca's last ship, the Bolton, was, it was boarded by the Klingons, <laughs> and everyone else died except for Lorca, who apparently didn't go down with his ship. Mm. I was thinking that this must be the reason why he's been so hard on the tactical side of Discovery, right? We've got to mm. get better. We've got to get better at killing them. We've got to get better at blowing them up. But Lorca comes back. I didn't abandon them. I was saving them by blowing up the ship. He killed the Klingons and saved the rest of his crew from being tortured, from having a long, tortured life on Kronos. This, of course, is what the Admiral did, you know, when his ship was being destroyed in the Battle of the Binary Stars. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. By the giant wedge thing. Right. He just didn't happen to beam off at the last minute. Exactly. Back to Discovery, they make the jump. And as, and as I sort of predicted, the tardigrade has died, but not quite died. It's in a frozen state, basically, by leaking most of its water content. They called it crypto something or other. Uh, they try to tell Saru about the creature. They try to tell, oh, sorry. <clears throat> they try to tell Saru about the creature, but he doesn't listen. He tells them just to rehydrate it and uh, sends the discovery after the ship that they think took Lorca. The doctor explains that by trying to revive it, it may kill the creature. Now, Saru, appropriately, I think, points out that the tardigrade is now their only way home and that it is their best shot. The doctor says he will not be party to murder. So Saru looks to Stamets and orders, and orders him to do it. Back in the Klingon cell. And Klingon... Stamets basically says, you know, we, we'll make it work. Yes. He yes. says something that's vague. Yes. He, he sort of say, agrees. He sort of agrees to it. Yeah, well, it's vague in the sense that he's we'll we'll get it done, or you know, but he doesn't say we will rehydrate the thing and and follow your orders as you have specified them. That is true. He did not say that. So back in the Klingon cell, the Klingons are back in and demand a ch the choice be made. Lorca looks confused. He doesn't know which way to choose, but young Nash Tyler says to choose him. Lorca reluctantly does it. Tyler is slapped and kicked. But then as the Klingon is about to drop his WWE finisher move, Tyler rolls away and strikes back. Lorca, too, attacks the guard with his gun and tries to strangle him with it. Ba-ba. Tyler strangles his, his guard with his own hands. Mud is astonished. <laughs> 
he didn't realize, of course, that he was being, or he only then realizes he was being tricked. He attempts to walk out with them. Oh, no, no, says Lorca. There is no we in this. And Lorca slams the butt of his gun into Mud's face. Slams the door. Mud comes running up to the door and yells out the window, You have not seen the last of Hartford Met Fenton Mud! I am coming for you, Lorca! <laughs> which is great, which is why I guess we're going to see him again, huh? Yeah. Lorca and Tyler move on, but Tyler is hurt. Lorca sort of leaves him in the middle of a hallway, but uh, just as Lorca leaves, the captain appears. Did you think you could leave me after all we've been through? And then they fight. Or start mating. I don't know which. It's hard to tell with Klingons. Lorca comes back and shoots at the captain who is left scarred and burning on the floor. Ah! They make their way towards the docking bay. Commercial. Now let's be honest. Because this is Laurel, it's the only reason that character wasn't killed, right? I mean... Right. <laughs> otherwise, he should have been totally, like, just destroyed. Oh, one less captain there. to deal with this. Yeah, exactly. Back at it! Lorca and Tyler are now in the stolen Klingon shuttle, and there's a hot pursuit going on from the other Klingons. On the Enterprise, they see the shuttle coming. On the Enterprise. <laughs> I wrote on the Enterprise. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, funny. On the Discovery, <laughs> they see the shuttle coming their way. The, the Klingon raiders, boom, boom, boom. Sar- uh, Saru kind of does a little deduction in front of everybody as he realizes that it must be Lorca in the ship. So Saru has them hailed. Lorca responds, and they are beamed off the radar just as it explodes. Boom. As soon as Lorca is beamed aboard, he tells them to jump. Stamets agrees that they are ready to jump, and then they jump. Upon arrival, Lorca is basic, basically welcomes Tyler to the ship. You know, they have that moment there where they are blah, blah, blah. And uh, what I, again, found out later, thanks to Memory Alpha, was that uh, Nash Tyler is is now a member of the crew. He's a regular on the show. So uh, that's interesting. I did not know that. So Saru calls to congratulate Stamets, but Stamets doesn't answer. What happened? A bunch of people, for some reason, a bunch of them, not just Saru, but a bunch of people rushed down to engineering. Stamets is found lying in the spore chamber. He tried it on himself. It wasn't Burnham, like I thought. That crazy dolt! Is he alive? <laughs> Saru, t- Saru touches him to see, and he awakes and asks if they made it. Saru says, yes, yes, we made it. And Stamets begins to laugh uncontrollably. Maniacally. Maniacally, almost. Saru then uh, visits Burnham. He tells Burnham that uh, he is not angry at her. Uh, he is more angry at the lost opportunity. The opportunity to learn from the great Captain Georgiou. Instead, it was Burnham who was given the chance to stand by her side and learn it all for seven years. He was assuming he w- she would move on to her own captainship and that he would then be able to learn at the, at the side of the great captain. He felt unprepared for today. Burnham assures him that he not only, he not only did well, that he did very well. She then gives him the telescope that was bequeathed to her so he can see the universe as she did. He asks her for one favor, and that is to save the tardigrade's life. We then go down to sickbay, I guess. I don't really know exactly where this happens, but you could assume at sickbay that they need a place to get rid of any kind of bad biology that might have occurred. <laughs> Could be a lab, too. Who knows? Anyway, so there is some place in a, with, a, with a vacuum chamber to release stuff into space, and uh, you see the uh, tardigrade now uh, lies still uh, folded. And they send it out into space with a bunch of the spores at its side, where the tardigrade then unfolds itself and realizes it is now free, and then warps away. Back in his ready room, Saru then cancels the computer analysis of his stewardship of the stewardship of the ship, saying, "I know what I did," he says. And then, in the final scene, we see that the captain and the doctor are lovers and that they care about each other, and they each tell the other not to do anything stupid like that again. I'm fine, says Stamets, almost too many times to let the viewer know that probably something is not fine, because as he turns to leave, his mere image stays there. Dun, dun, dun. What does it mean? Nobody knows. Commercial. It is also during this commercial break that I see a holiday commercial of all things. Come on! It's not even Halloween yet, folks. 
<laughs> and then I was excited to see what we would see in next week's trailer. But I didn't get a next week's trailer. I was so disappointed. Dun, dun, you didn't? Dun. No. Did you get to see it? Yeah. Oh, well, lucky you. It just didn't come up in mine. I'll have to look it up online. So are we going to the Mirror Universe next week? Is that what's happening? I don't know. They talked about the Mirror Universe on After Trek. Well, I also saw an article, too, that there was apparently some promo shots done of Lorca mm-hmm. and the ISS Discovery oh. plaque was hanging behind him. So, oops. But they may have given it away. We'll see. Dun-dun-dun. Possible spoiler. All right. Well, that's all I got for this week. Anything else we didn't get to? No, I think we covered it pretty nicely. Covered it all well. All right. Just a little bit of business before we go, folks. This Sunday I'm getting married. I know it's very exciting. I'm excited, too. But don't worry. Next week we'll be back with a show. (laughs) However, the following week we will not have a show because I'm going to be on my honeymoon. So deal with it. But we'll be back in the uh, following week after that. We'll do double duty on both episodes. And it'll be really exciting and fun. And, oh, boy, can't you wait. Until then, my name is Matt from Austin, and as always from Houston, say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. And we will see you all next week.